Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. I just was a vacuum, you know, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. It wasn't, I didn't think I was doing like, quote, research, you know, I was also really late to the game. I didn't understand, I had, didn't know what feminism was when I started writing my blog. Like, I remember a few years into writing my blog, someone wrote about it, like in a small press, and they referred to it as feminist, and I Googled it. Like, that's how I was, yeah, I had no idea until I was like, you know, whatever, 24 or something. So all of those early experiences were not, I don't know, I wasn't approaching them with a critical awareness. I was like super sexually curious. I was really sexually rebellious given my upbringing. So I think in a way it's just being, I liked being provocative. That was Carly Shortino. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the show is the one and only Carly Shortino. She is a uh, sex columnist at Vogue um, and a general uh, sex educator on all kinds of platforms, uh, including her Vice show, which is called Slut Ever, her website, which is uh, slutever.com. And uh, two years ago, back in 2017, she wrote a wonderful book called Slut Ever, Dispatches from an Autonomous Woman in a Post-Shame World. Now, if you just started listening to the podcast um, two or three weeks ago, you may be wondering how the hell we got from 
Whitney Cummings to Justin Simeon to Peter Bogdanovich and now to Carly. Um, I just want to say, uh, in the interest of transparency, this is very much uh, the design and thesis of the show, which is a podcast that can have different kind of conversations with different kinds of people on a week-to-week basis. Um, I realize that uh, that may cause for some general inconsistency within the guests that we have. Um, for some, I think it may be disorienting to hear uh, you know, an hour with Peter Bogdanovich, the man behind Paper Moon and Last Picture Show and is this kind of Hollywood icon, to then uh, listen to a conversation with Carly in which Gosh, uh, we discuss so much. Uh, I, I kind of want to give a parental uh, warning, mainly for my parents. But but um, really, uh, uh, maybe anyone above the age of 60 who is listening, which is, I think, my target demographic. I'm not sure, but I think it is. There are some things exchanged on this podcast. There are some things uh, that Carly has done and that I have done that um, <laughs> uh, could be considered embarrassing or they can be considered uh, experience uh, from which you can grow from, uh, or at least that's what I like to tell my parents. So um, if you are familiar with Carly's work, uh, I hope you learned something new about her today. Uh, I am very much uh, in awe of how uh, this person is just so damn vulnerable and honest um, in her work and in her life. So um, if you're not familiar with Carly Shortino, please uh, go check out her show on Vice. It's called Slut Ever. Um, her website is called slutever.com. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying the word slut anymore than I have uh, in this intro. So um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Carly is uh, fantastic. And uh, to bring it full circle, exactly the kind of guest who uh, should come on this show. So I hope you have a good week. And without further ado, here is Carly Shortino. It's really funny because I I find that I get more nervous on podcasts than I do public speaking. Because? I don't know. I think that maybe it's because you really have to rely on what's coming out of your mouth, a.k.a. your brain. (laughs) And um, I don't know, not your stupid facial expressions or something. Do you have a lot of uh, stupid facial expressions? I think I'm quite expressive with my face. Okay. Are you? Well, we're going to find out. (laughs) I, I don't know. You can communicate some of that. And I'll try to relay it on the podcast or okay. whatever you do. You're <laughs> smiling right now. Yes. That'll be the end of it. I, I have so many things to talk to you about. Can we start growing up in New York? Uh, your parents met uh, in high school. I think it was 16, right? Mm-hmm. And they fall in love and they stay together. And they've essentially been two people who've only seen each other. You grow up in this like Catholic home. What is your earliest memory of being a teenager and thinking, oh, that's fascinating? It's interesting because that 
dynamic of parents who met in high school and were still together was sort of all that I knew because my town is really small. I grew up in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, and it's one of those towns, it's, it's a bit, everyone is sort of the same. It's a lot of third-generation Italian Catholics, and IBM is there, and all my friends' dads worked at IBM, and all my friends' parents met in high school kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it didn't seem that strange. And, you know, I was taught don't have sex until you're married. And then at the time I was growing up, it was that time when Jessica Simpson and Britney Spears were really cool. <laughs> and they were saying we're waiting till we're getting married to have sex. So did they t- really? Yes, they did. When I was in high school, I write about this in, in a part of my book that it was a time in which Britney Spears was writhing on the floor naked with a, a snake singing, I'm a slave for you, while simultaneously saying I'm waiting till I get married to have sex. So it was this bizarre time for female sexuality and it was just like so objectified and blatant but also with this still this puritanical sort of underlying thing but none of that seems strange to me until I started wanting to have sex basically Mm -hmm. and then the idea that you would just have sex with one person was so bizarre because as soon as you have sex with one person all you want to do is see what it's like to have sex with other people right well I mean maybe not immediately but (laughs) maybe immediately some, some people uh, dip their toe in and then retreat a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. It was just, I feel like I was really hit with sexual curiosity around 14, 15. And it seemed like my friends were as well. It didn't seem like I was the odd one out. But I also do respect those relationships that my parents have, that they just last decades and decades and they still are in a great relationship and they still seem to really, really love each other and they're affectionate. And having a model like that of a relationship... They still love each other. Yeah, they do. They're in a really good relationship. And I think if you have a model like that for relationships when you're young, it does form a sort of stability. Mm -hmm. Do you... Are your parents still together? No. (laughs) There's been a... There's been a... a handful of divorces. Right. Yeah. But... Did you want what they have or or still have? Um, I guess I wasn't thinking about it that literally, but also when that's the model that you have growing up, and all none of my parents, none of my friends' parents were divorced either. I none of my friends from high school were still really good friends have divorced parents. It's bizarre. Maybe I mean, it's I, maybe it's IBM. Maybe it's IBM. It's also a specific sort of small town socioeconomic class. Um, religion. So that to me seemed like it was the only option almost. And you know how they say that when you're, if your parents an alcoholic, then you want to be sober because you know what the opposite is like Uh and it seems bad. Mm -hmm. So if you, I think that there is some truth to the fact that if you grow up with the model of stable long-term relationships, it almost feels like you have the space to rebel a little bit or see what else is there because there's this Almost a blind faith that one day you will be in a long-term stable marriage because that's just how it ends. Mm -hmm. So I think I do want what they have to an extent. I like the idea of having a partner for a long term. Not you know doesn't don't know if it has to be like forever in a traditional fairy tale sense, but I like the idea of being able to sustain and work on a long-term relationship. Mm. Uh, In high school, when you had sex for the first time. Um, it's weird that I know so much about your sexual history <laughs> just based on reading. Yeah. I don't want anyone listening to think like I had some background or something. <laughs> yeah. I just read things you wrote. Yeah, it's all over. Well, it's in my book, so. Yeah. It's okay. not like stalking. It's not stalking. Yeah. Okay. If you don't think it's stalking, then it's not stalking. No. We'll it's move. research. It's research. Yeah. 
Boy, we're justifying it really well here. Um, you lose your virginity at 16. Never said that since on the podcast. Um, do you tell your parents about uh, that first experience? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> that, of course is that not. A, is that a horrible question? No, it's just... It's, I talk about this in therapy all the time, that it, when you when you grow up in a, in a Catholic family, I mean, my experience is that there's like two levels of reality. There's like the the reality that is every person's personal reality, your experiences, um, your relationships, your sex life, your curiosities, your perversions or whatever. And then that there's like the fake version that you expressed to the world mm -hmm. and that there's actually it's implied within familial relationships that you will lie and pretend to be a, a sort of more watered down or polite version of yourself because that's just what everyone wants to see and pretend that's true. It's easier. It's easier. So they would prefer that I had if I was having sex that I was pretending I wasn't because no one wants to deal with anything. Mm -hmm. And then as you grow up, this is why I talk about it in therapy, is that you have to remodel that because you assume that in friendships and in adult relationships that that's the mode you should operate in. And it's like, no, you have to work on to achieve real intimacy or healthy relationships. You can't just constantly be lying yeah. to keep the peace. But no, I did not tell them, basically. They wouldn't have wanted to know. They wouldn't have wanted to know. No. I didn't tell them anything about me having sex at all until I started my blog, Slut Ever, at 21. And then was blogging, or yeah, 21. And then I was blogging about like ketamine orgies. And they were like, wow, zero to 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gave them uh, nothing and then ketamine orgies. I mean, this is not a hot take, right? People understand that secrecy breeds shame. So just being able to talk openly about something with your kids or with your parents seems clearly like the right way Move. to do things. Yeah. yeah. But you uh, had to be in secret about uh, wanting to leave uh, home uh, at 18 because your parents wanted you to go to uh, West Point. West Point Military College, yes. And they, they, boot camp. They thought it'd be great. You go into the army. They pay for college. Yes. You decide, I can't possibly do this and put an ocean between the two of you and go to London. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is such a crazy idea. I was very athletic, so it wasn't just like I was... It, <laughs> Wait, my what dad thought what that does I athletic would... have to do with anything? <laughs> Basically, I was thinking like... I got to London because I'm so athletic. No, I was thinking because my, my parents like go to West Point and that, you know, you have to do go to boot camp and then become a cadet and I was like well you know maybe they thought that it was realistic because I was super athletic mm -hmm. <laughs> that was sort of a bit of a tangent but yeah it was such a practical decision like but no I did not want to do that at all I was like I want to be an actress and I want to do drugs so I went to London to go to college it was um that's what you told them no I didn't tell them that <laughs> I did the above board thing I was like I want to be a thespian <laughs> um they they were weirded out about me going to London, though. I went through a lo local college. There, they had a theater program that sent you to London for your first semester of college, which is, I've never heard of a... That's lovely. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It's like a foreign program happening, study abroad in the first year. Sounds bizarre. But anyway, so I went there for a semester, and then I was ostensibly going to come back. And then after that semester, I just dropped out because I was like, oh, wait, I don't want to go back. That wasn't my plan mm -hmm. my sort of game plan the whole time but i just loved the idea of being going back to near my house 
in my small town where everyone knew everything about me. Yeah, after you're that far away, no way. Though when you're going there and you're leaving home and, and really all the people that you knew in your life to that point, were you excited to leave or was there any anxiety about living in a foreign land? There was kind of. I mean, I'd never been out of the country. I'd only been on a plane a couple times, like going back and forth to Florida. I think I was just excited and also naive. I didn't had no idea what to expect. Like I remember getting there and people talking with an accent and being really thrown by that. Just like what? I mean, I was seventeen. It was right before I got there, like a couple months before my eighteenth birthday. <laughs> so in, in London, um, you are. Living in an artist commune. <laughs> yeah. With... Art, artist with the very loosest definition of the word. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Meaning like it was like those artists that don't actually make art. You oh, know that's I mean? great. Those right. are my favorite kind of people. Yeah, exactly. I know many of them. Um, you do? Well, I did. But yeah. sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. I, no, no. The, the, the idea of living in a, a quote unquote artist commune sounds uh, lovely <laughs> and horrifying. To me. Yes. That's a perfect definition. Okay. Basically what happened was I, uh, to sort of give you a rant of context, I moved to London, dropped out, and then I wanted to stay, but I didn't have money or a job or anywhere to live. Oh, and my, money, right. Right, money, yeah. And my parents, they were, you know, the idea was that when I was in college, they were going to give me a little bit of money. Like mm-hmm. I took out loans, but they were giving me some cash to survive on. And then as soon as I dropped out, they were like, no, we're not going to pay for you to just do nothing. So I was cut off. And I had met this guy at a party who was living in a squatted commune, you know, and I think most people understand what a squat is, but it's basically just occupying a building that you don't own. And they were all like freegans and got their food out of dumpster diving from supermarkets. And And you were part of this. Well, they basically I was sort of emerging... Emerging? No, I was like about Emerge? to be homeless. I'm oh, yeah. emerging homeless. Um, immersed? I don't know. No. I don't know where I was going with that. But basically, I was living on my boyfriend's couch, <laughs> and on the verge of homelessness. Yeah, I think I was going to say emergent or emerging, like yeah. emerging into homelessness. Yeah, I mean, you're the one who wrote a book, so I don't know. What to <laughs> yeah, say. it's really funny. I really like. I use the thesaurus a lot when I write because words are not weirdly my specialty. But anyways. Um, <laughs> So they were like, come live with us, because I had made really good friends with this guy. He was this sort of amazingly um, avant-garde artist, like six foot four, gay, like crazy hair, wore mm-hmm. capes. I was like, whoa. Like, I'd never met someone like that in my small town where everyone wore like Uggs and had junky highlights, like myself included. So I moved in with the, into this, you know, egalitarian-esque commune and I lived in squat different squats then for the next six years they were all with varying degrees of um sanity really Mm -hmm. six years is a long time (laughs) yeah I mean that's six years without heating or hot water oh my god it was so insane like now I'm such a bitch like I can't like if I stay in an Airbnb that's like slightly dirty I'm like what wait actually that's not true I can I'm still I can still be pretty (laughs) gross like I'll use someone else's towel. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like using someone else's toothbrush. Like I oh moved on from there. How did you stay sane in that environment? You know, I was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs. So there's sort of a numbing. But right. you're also young. Like I was doing it from 18 to 24. 
And it was a really incredible time, but also a really disgusting time. It was formative for me in ways I think that are completely not quantifiable. Like, no one had anything, so everything was everyone's. And it was, you know, difficult to live in those conditions. It was really cold. You, like, they have to find friends' houses to take a shower or you, like, take a shower in cold water. It was just so silly and ridiculous. And we just bonded so closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can tolerate a lot more of that stuff when you're younger. As my therapist would say, who I keep quoting my therapist, which makes me sound, I'm sure, very annoying, but that, you know, <laughs> that if you're taking that many drugs and drinking that much, you're numbing something. You're suppressing something, you know? And like, what, what was that? I think, you know, running away from home, um, not having a very good relationship with my parents, my relationship with them being severed a lot at the time by writing my blog, which was about sexuality, which was thought I was being like completely blasphemous and embarrassing in my family, in my mm-hmm. town, um, not really having a life plan, <laughs> so to speak, not having gone to college, writing a blog, but not making any money, moving into my mid-20s, all these things are really scary. So if you don't want to deal with the anxiety of that, you know, you can take ketamine every night Yeah, and blog during the day. God, maybe I should try that. <laughs> Have you ever had a period of intense, um, yeah, like avoidance, numbing, like, oh, I'm drinking a lot or smoking a lot of cigarettes or smoking a ton of weed, that kind of stuff? Uh, in college. Right. I think only in that time, but I think the period you're talking about, which is 18 to 19 to 20, 21, is such a uh, delicate time and you don't really have i think um, the mental capacity to process it so we do whatever we think we ought to do that's a good point yeah it's just so much information there's so many new people you're displaced often for the first time ever um i'm a little envious that you had your that sounds much more fun than anything i've done (laughs) i didn't get to do any of that it's good to do it when you're younger because doing that when you're like third in your early 30s would be, I think, quite tragic. A bummer. Yes, exactly. What were the conversations like between uh, you and your parents as you're writing a blog about your sex life in those early uh, 20 years? Oh, wow. This is really like, I feel like I'm in, you know, going deep into psychoanalysis or psychoanalysis. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's funny because these are things I'm th- I've been thinking about a lot recently. Well, good. Yeah, because, again, things I've kind of avoided thinking about. But, you know, there actually wasn't that many conversations. Like what I was saying before, when you grow up in a family that's repressive, people don't want to have those conversations. They're too difficult, so you just avoid them. So when I started writing the blog, my parents were angry, but it kind of manifested as our relationship just growing apart and us not talking that much. And then when we did talk, we would just yell at each other and fight. Um, my parents were really embarrassed, I think. It's interesting because, first of all, they were ultimately worried about what the implications of writing a blog about that was about sex and quite explicit as a young person, how that would affect your future career and life. Because they grew up, they both grew up working class. And then when I was younger, they were, you know, we were a middle class family, but they were still very worried about money. So for them, they were really concerned with whether I would be able to support myself going forward. You wrote that your mother was concerned uh, that being open about my, and I really don't like using this word, but I know you're reclaiming it. uh, (laughs) Being open about my slutty adventures online would make it difficult to find a guy to date me. 
Yeah, exactly. They were just like, who's going to love you and who's going to pay you, basically. Um, And I think I get some of their anxieties, right? It was 12 years ago when I started my blog. I think that the way we viewed female sexuality back then, I mean, in this relatively short amount of time, things have changed a lot. Mm. There was not as much of a public discourse about sluttiness or about... um, yeah, I guess female sexuality in general. I mean, I, now I open Teen Vogue and it's like, why sex workers should have rights and like here's how to masturbate if you have a clit, you know, mm-hmm. and how to have anal sex. When I was young, Teen Vogue was like, here's how to, like the best push-up bra that will help you get a boyfriend, you know? And so I think... That's got to be so disheartening to read. I know. But it's so crazy how much it's changed. It's really amazing. Like, I truly did read an anal sex guide on Teen Vogue mm-hmm. recently. Oh, I read that too. <laughs> yeah. Good info. But... I, it, I did not. <laughs> and, and honestly, if my parents are listening, I don't subscribe to Teen Vogue. <laughs> I'm more embarrassed about subscribing to Teen Vogue. No. <laughs> um, honestly, it's become like almost like it's so woke that it's almost too woke for me. But... Is that possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. Really? Yeah. You could get outwoked? Oh my god, I can get very outwoked. I <laughs> <laughs> think in my friend group, I am yeah, I'm probably like an 8 on the woke scale when a lot of my friends are like a 9.5, so oh, I'm the the offensive one sometimes. I must be at like a 5.5. Five. You're a 5? I actually I don't that, know. that's I, don't I know. admire that. I'm wherever Chappelle is and then not that bad. <laughs> That's how I gauge it. <laughs> but you don't like to use the word slut, so that's quite woke. Well, I think okay, so so let's get into this because <laughs> because um you said in an interview once that your twenties is a time really where you discover what you want sexually. And the word uh slut to you is something that you've reclaimed and redefined and written a book about and done a show about, and I'm probably missing other <laughs> wonderful things you've done. Um, I know the definition of it, but why don't you give uh, what it means to you right now in 2019? To me, a slut is someone who seeks out visceral experiences through sex and has a lot of sexual curiosity and essentially doesn't have a moral obstacle between themselves and the sex they want to have. you know, That's exactly the quote I have here. Really? You, yeah, I'm quoting myself. I'm pretending are... that I'm thinking about it in real time. No, no. It, I mean, you, you can do it. I mean, that was pretty good. I'm just going to call you. <laughs> like, so you're reading from your book. I actually changed it a little bit to you make did. it sound more colloquial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their desire to enjoy sex was the last right. part of it. And there's like a part that says someone who has sex with who they want, how they want, and isn't ashamed about it. Yep, I have that too. Yeah, I mean, I have my talking points. No, you're good. You're like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who I love. Um, oh, I love him too. It's just when you hear him talk, you're like, I think I've heard this 27 times. I mean, I'm not exactly equating you to Bernie. Oh my God, but you have to. I actually had this revelatory moment kind of recently because I used to think that you could only say the same thing once ever. Mm-hmm. And then once you, and then when I was doing publicity for my show, I was like, wait, I have to think of something new to say every fucking day. And then I was listening to Amy Schumer for some reason do press. And then I was like, oh, she says the same thing every day. You can just say, say the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. So now, now that's what I've started to do. No, it's good. <laughs> but not on this podcast. This podcast has been more a bit like we're more, deviating. Yeah. So you, you wrote also in this, in this part of reclaiming um, that part of the reason slut has been negative 
has been a negative term is because uh, it's perceived that when two people have sex, men are getting something and women are giving something. Are you discovering your own sexual identity in your 20s at that time when you start writing? Yes. In London, it was more like I just was a vacuum. You know, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. It wasn't, I didn't think I was doing like, quote, research. You know, I was also really late to the game. I didn't understand. I had didn't know what feminism was when I started writing my blog. Like, I remember a few years into writing my blog, someone wrote about it, like in a small press, and they referred to it as feminist. And I Googled it. Like, that's how I was. Really? Yeah, I had no idea until I was like, you know, whatever, 24 or something. So all of those early experiences were not, I don't know, I wasn't approaching them with a the critical awareness. I was like super sexually curious. I was really sexually rebellious given my upbringing. So I think part of my desire to have sex was because I thought it was fun and adventurous and I liked meeting new people and the intimacy of that and the sort of like shortcut to intimacy of sex and casual sex, but also... In a way, it's just being, I liked being provocative. I mm. wanted to break boundaries. It's like this famous Camille Paglia quote. She's this controversial feminist who I love. And she grew up Italian Catholic. And she says, subversion needs limits to violate, which I always think is so perfect. Like being told no is a really great motivator, mm. right? Um, I think more moving into my late 20s, I started to realize what, you know, what do I like? What do I not like? Now that I've sort of like, gorged everything on the menu, like, let's parse through this a little bit and, like, <laughs> look at it a little bit more reflectively. And I do think that, and then I started thinking more about, based on how people reacted to my writing, reacted to me and my personal life, then you start to think, okay, how do people perceive women who talk about sex this way, mm -hmm. who have an over, an open sexuality? And then those things started to lead to the beginnings of what my book was eventually about. Both in that time and even now, I, I was thinking about it driving here, has sex both just like in your life, but then how you've commodified talking about it and, and exploring it and investigating it, has it consumed most of your life? That's interesting. You know, I guess a part of my life, yeah, I keep talking about, Catholicism, but I do think that when something is, there's so much importance put on sex in the Catholic religion. Like, you know what I mean? It's mm. like something you're not supposed to yeah. have, but it is something that they are fucking obsessed with. So that is instilled in you, I think. And then, yeah, and then it's a bit of once you start writing a sex blog as a woman, then it's something that a lot of people want to talk about because people are so curious and they just want permission to be able to talk mm -hmm. about it. So I get... You've opened the floodgate. A yeah, bit. exactly. But it's something, thank God, that I really like talking about. Like, even in my, quote, spare time, I love talking to my friends about sex and their sex lives and their relationships. I mean, I think that's just being a normal person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I kind of don't get sick of it. That's incredible. Yeah, sick of talking about it. I mean, I get sick of hearing myself talk sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um, aside from writing, I mean... My writing now is a lot more about relationships than sex. Mm -hmm. Like when writing my column, it's not like I'm constantly writing about like blowjob technique, you know? Right. So I think that it's the, the, the subject of relationships is so expansive that it doesn't just feel like I'm, you know, eating from the same 
Yeah. What is the saying? I don't even know if that's a saying. It doesn't feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. Of something about eating, but I... <laughs> is I, that one? I, I, I think it may be something. I sometimes make up those it's things. It's okay. You can make them okay. up. Okay. But, like, I think that they're real, and then I just say something that doesn't make sense. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it calm, because the, the, the last one you wrote was about falling in love, and when to say, um, you know, I, I love you. And uh, in it, I have I have... Just the opening paragraph I saved. The question of when to say I love you in a relationship is a contentious one. In the many conversations I've had on the topic, the consensus seems to be that three months uh, is the sweet spot, but that feels like a lifetime to me. In all my serious relationships, the L word was dropped closer to three weeks, and at the risk of sounding delusional, I often feel like I'm in love with someone after, like, three days. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I, now, that I, now that we've got context for your work and, and stuff. How has um, your work informed how you fall in love? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Um, my work has definitely affected my relation, my love relationships, because there's been times when it's been a really contentious within, like, my one of my serious relationships was in my mid-20s. Mm -hmm. Well, I got dumped for starting my blog in my early 20s. You did. Yeah. It was sort of something that he couldn't handle. It's a good reason to get dumped. Yes. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, it's sort of cinematic. Like, but, uh, and then in my mid-20s, my boyfriend was sort of always critical about it. I think he was threatened, but that manifested in the form of telling me that writing about sexuality was, like, girly and insignificant. But Sounds like a joy. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> that worked out well for me. Those two and a half years. <laughs> two but, and a half. Yeah, I think I should have cut that off earlier, but whatever. We live and learn. But um, but yeah, the relationship I'm in now, it's funny because my boyfriend reached out to me because he'd been reading my column and so and was really like, I, you're, it's really sweet and warm. And I was like, oh, wow, those are words that ne no one ever uses when talking about my writing, but that I am so glad that yeah. he did. You it, know? Told, it actually is very much so. That's so nice. Yeah. I felt so accepted, you know, because I think that, I don't know if this is really what you're asking, but how does the work affect how you fall in love? It's, I think I'm acutely aware over time that that my work is sometimes a, difficult for people and it's a barrier for people. And also, like, I used to work as a dominatrix and that was yet another thing that made people uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. I think that if someone really likes my work and is really accepting of it, I feel like that's a really emotional thing for me. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, a dominatrix and in that time before you were in uh, a monogamous relationship, you've written so many things and it's, and it's kind of peculiar for me to like pick out the things that I was struck by. <laughs> but I was struck by three things I've written down here. And I just want to ask you about, if you're open to it, how these things come about. Sure, I'll I, try. I have very, like, practice. I feel like I'm, like, Larry David asking oh. these questions. <laughs> um, so you went to, you described it as eyes wide shut sex parties. Yeah. So for for people who are less interesting, <laughs> uh, I'm counting myself in this camp, how does this come about and what is that experience like of just being a person walking into that kind of environment? Well, 
Okay, so I think people know what the Eyes Wide Shut sex party is, right? It's like Tom Cruise, and there's, it's not, it wasn't that intense. Yeah. Like in the movie, it's like in the Illuminati, and yeah, there's yeah, all yeah. these supermodels naked with crazy masks. It's like Fidelio and all kinds of nonsense. Right, exactly. But this was, so I think this was, um, I don't know, maybe five years ago, and I I have a friend who is a sex party addict, I guess you could say. She's... <laughs> She's very big in the swinger community. So it's like it's a Tuesday night. Oh, yeah, for her. She slept with over a thousand people. That's great. But I was like, what? And then so she's, she's sometimes surprised when people are surprised by it. I'm like, that's crazy. That's like a full-time job. That's a full-time job. Yeah, that, it's insane. Yeah, when you hear like Will Chamberlain had sex with like 10,000, you're like, I, he played basketball too. But Right, exactly. But, but the, that was the, the primary. Well, do you know the stories of that is that he would play a game. He'd go back to his hotel. And a line of women would just line up outside the door of his hotel and just go in one at a time. Wait, is that real? Yeah. That sounds genuinely like that sounds sad for him. Oh, You know, he's not alive, so we don't know. All right. But it would be I wish there were more quotes about um, him doing that because you hear all kind. you know, you heard the thing about like Bowie and Mick Jagger and they always are like thousands and thousands I wonder, like, that sounds fun for, like, a month to me. Yeah. Thousands? Or even not even. It's like, think about how, like, the lack of connection that he must feel in his life. Like, well, I He's think, dead, so there's no connection. Right. <laughs> exactly. But he felt like, I think that that's, you know, when you're a 14-year-old boy, you're like, whoa, that's crazy. But then that just sounds, number one, exhausting and impossible, painful. Like, what does painful. your body feel like painful. after that? Oh, I don't know. But, um... But no, it sounds like quite sad, actually. It does. Yeah. So your friend is a sex party addict. But she's she's like not like that. She's not Wilt Chamberlain esque. She's but she is. She's adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's sort of like somehow seems very connected and healthy. But so anyway, she was like, I felt as though I'd been writing a sex column for a very long time, and that I'd never been to a sex party, and that that was somehow, you know, a, a notch I needed on my resume to uh-huh. be considered significant. Mm -hmm. So she invited me to this party that uh, was like on the top floor of the Thompson Hotel in Soho. And it was, you know, of all the sex parties in New York, she said, this is one of the the great ones, right? You have to be invited. And she would know, honestly. And there's about 150 people. And I was really nervous. And I put on this pink power suit because I like didn't know what to wear. I was wearing these secretary glasses. And I got there and I'm not I don't know, maybe this is is counterintuitive, but I actually have a significant amount of social anxiety, like at parties. So and then sometimes I'll drink to make myself feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So talk about social anxiety more than ever. I mean, you get to this party, people are already in sort of thongs and guys. It's very like burning. It's What's interesting is that it's in New York and L.A., those are the only places that I've like had these experiences, that there's a huge overlap between the Burning Man, Burner community, and the Swinger community. Do, do, I just, there's no chance I could do it. No, okay, I'd so. I'd have to be on drugs. Well, okay, that's, this is sort of the story. There's no chance I could do it either. I So I have social anxiety. I'm also not an exhibitionist. Like, I think you, people think, oh, if you're into sort of yeah. Weird sex, or if you're is slutty, that public performing sexually. Yeah, exhibitionism is when you kind of like to be on display, to oh, perform, God. to be that you like being watched, right? But these things are not all connected. You can like casual sex and not want to 
fuck a stranger in front of like an audience of 12 dudes in tutus or whatever. So I go. The tutus is a deal breaker. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I was like, I got to get, I need some drugs. But I drank too much and then I would, to make myself feel comfortable. So I was a little sloppy. And then I met this couple and I was like, they were taking ecstasy. So I was like, can I have some ecstasy? And then I took ecstasy. And then I sort of remember hooking up like with this group with in like sort of a pile, like a weird pile of bodies. I don't know. Like I have this weird sort of like melting body memory. And then I passed out. And then this woman <laughs> wakes me up and she's like, honey, like, you can't sleep on this bed. Like, people have to have sex here. So I get up. I get a cab. I'm um, so excuse sick. Excuse me. Uh, this is really not for sleeping. We're <laughs> trying to have sex. <laughs> We're trying to have sex Can here. Can you please move? But genuinely, there was only, like, four beds. It was, like, all these penthouses on the top floor connected, and there was, like, 150 people. Like, they need the beds. So I get up, and— Are they I- changing out the sheets? No, I mean, no. There's literally a tray of warm oysters that sat out all night. Oh, like, my God. <laughs> you just had the most physical triggered response I've ever seen to someone's Warm like, oysters? No, it was, a, it was a shit show. I mean, it was cool in that it was <laughs> genuinely, it was a beautiful space and people were... It, I've been to other sex parties since since then where most people don't have sex and there's a few people having sex and it's like, oh my God, those people are having sex. This sex party, I woke up from sleeping and I looked around and every single corner of every room where people were fucking and I was tripping. So this ecstasy had some like acid or something in it and literally I was looking around and I felt like I was like at fucking Ren Fair, like in an orgy, but happening like in the depths of hell and I was like ah and I had to get out and then I went and got in a cab and had to stop the cab to throw up it was like Mm -hmm. truly a nightmare from hell and was that like a Saturday or I don't even honestly I don't have a real job so I don't never know what day it is (laughs) I just don't know how you'd go back to normal life after that like the next morning are you like yeah I guess I'll go get coffee with some friends and (laughs) no I was in a bed all day like I could not I was the most hungover I've ever been in my life, spiritually, morally, physically. Yeah. No, I'm I'm going to start feeling it after you leave. <laughs> um, another thing that happened, this is one I picked out because I just, I need to know. I have questions. You were suspended upside down from the ceiling by a guy with a low-hanging man bun. I don't even know what that means. You don't know what a low-hanging man bun is? That's also quite burner. It's like, you know, like when guys have like, a man bun, but it's sort of like down the yeah. back of their neck and it's yeah. sort of like loose. Okay, it's scary. That, yeah. But how, do, oh. I just have a question. How does you, you Carly, yeah. go from like living your life, walking, going into a room, and then being <laughs> hung up upside down from a ceiling? Like, what, what's the, I'm very, I'm, act, I'm asking very like practical, confused. <laughs> I've never felt more like this is like a Seinfeld bit. Wait, this is like the best transition. So you're just living your life, walking, and then you're in a room, and then you're hung upside down. Yeah. It's like that's the where, sequence of where, events. Where do you go? How do you get to being upside down is what I want to know. So I was in LA that time. And I, there's no judgment here. I hope I, hope I know. that's clear. I feel safe. This is a safe space. I okay, feel that. good. So it was in San Francisco, actually, and we were shooting an early 
episode of the Slut Ever Show, but I almost can't even remember which episode it was. It was when it was still online. And I remember being in San Francisco and we went to this um, fetish night. This guy, there was this guy who was like older and um, he was doing suspension. So he suspended me from the ceiling. So, um, yeah, that was just a day. That was literally we were at work on production. So. That's how that happened, of course. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's I, look. I'm still a little confused on all the practical steps. But <laughs> did it? You wrote um, a fun piece for Vogue. Um, uh, when you turned thirty, you celebrated with like a foursome. <laughs> by accident. By accident. Can you walk me through that? Okay. So okay, this is a complicated. Okay, I'm gonna say this as fast as I could. So I had never been on a blind date ever in my life really yeah you've and- hung upside down from the <laughs> ceiling but you've never suffered through a blind date i'd never been on a blind date i mean i guess i just grew up in the age of the internet and was like social enough yeah but so when i was 29 my friend um went on a date with this guy that she met online and then she was like call me up and she was like hey i think i'm gay because I've been struggling with this for a while and I went on this date with this guy and he's like actually perfect and hot and nice and I don't want to have sex with him. So I think I must be a lesbian, but like you should date him. And I was like, okay. So she set me up on a blind date with him and he was so nice and hot, but he was really cagey and strange. Like he lived in D.C. um, and didn't want to tell me his job and didn't want to tell me his name. He only gave me his first name. And we, we we were dating, like, whenever he would come to New York, we'd meet up with each other for almost a year. And he never told me what his last name was or where he worked. I started to be like, this guy's—I thought he was in the CIA, which I thought was hot. But then someone was like, maybe he's a murderer. I was like, probably not. He's like a little—he seemed a little too weak and pathetic to be a murderer. Like, I don't know. He was kind of like a cuck bitch, you know? Anyways— <laughs> There's so many things, but go on. Anyway, so he... Also, how would you know <laughs> what a murderer feels like? Do you have a lot of experience sleeping with murderers? No, but he just, like, did ballet and sort of, like, if you were, like, angry That's agility. <laughs> that's, just, that's just being agile. That could become really a useful tool. True. That's true. You're shaming murderers right now. I know. I'm a murder shamer. There was just something about him that was, like, a little... You didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. I mean, God, I hope you weren't. (laughs) But I hope he's in the CIA. That's my Hollywood fantasy. But so he, I knew that he had been to some sex parties and had like dabbled in swinger stuff, but that was not something that we'd ever talked about doing together. And then on the eve of my birthday, like my last, last 29th day, we had dinner. Um, You know, I was having a birthday party the next day. It wasn't like I was spending my birthday with him. But then he was like, I want you to meet my two friends. Let's have dinner with them. So we went out to this nice dinner and his friends, like, they were talking about how they're in an open marriage. And, you know, when that started, we start talking about that. And then sort of slowly through the evening, I realized that we're like on a date with these people. But he had never explicitly said that, Mm -hmm. you know, and he starts like being really touchy with me at the table. So... Eventually, like near the bathroom, I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he's like, we don't have to do anything that you're uncomfortable with. I was like, yes, thank you. I know. I'm not like your slave. What? Um, Hey, just so you know, um, you can make your own choices. Yeah. I was like, Uh, thanks for your permission. Um, I have ballet dancer. I have another. Yeah, he's a ballet dancer. (laughs) Um, Another practical question about a foursome. Is it is it challenging to just 
satisfy all parties because I feel like that's where I'd fail. I don't think I could. I would just be like, oh, I, I'm going over there. I'm over here. I'm not doing enough on really. God, my parents are going to listen. <laughs> but it's true. This is my concern. This is why I don't know if I could do it. No, a lot of people have that anxiety. And it's funny because I think I can tell what kind of person someone is based on their group sex, group sex anxiety. Because if you're someone who feels like you have to please people, that you're responsible for people, that like you, if you're a caretaker, like I feel like if you had like a mom who was like unstable and you had to look after her as a kid, that you would feel anxious in group sex. Well, now I really don't want my mom to listen to this <laughs> podcast. No, no, it's like your that mom. That was an asshole thing to 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 posit. Really? Well, I mean, I'm fine with it, but that you're saying that since I'm anxious to have sex with three people, that I must have an unstable mother. Not an unstable mom, but like for example, like if you grew Seems up, seems like a loose connection. Well, I don't know anything about your mom. <laughs> I'm just giving you shit now. <laughs> but like, now I feel bad. I'm like, oh shit, was that insensitive? I just mean like if you grew up in an unstable environment or if you had like a a younger brother who you really felt like protective of mm. or if you somehow feel like you have to be the caretaker in your relationships. If you sort of have that psychology at all, then you feel like responsible for other people during group sex. Whereas... If there's a certain kind of person that just feels like, oh, everyone should have their own boundaries and be responsible for themselves. And if it's not my mm-hmm. it's not my job to make sure they have fun. I'm option. I'm camp one. That's why I can't throw birthday parties because I'm constantly af- just aware of whether other people are having fun. Like oh, I feel responsible. For disaster. That. So see, th- that's what I mean. Yeah. Is that you? It is me. But I don't think it's exactly because of maternal instability. I think the, yeah. I I can see how that could be a cause. In my case, it may very well be a cause, a little bit, but I I don't know if the two are entirely. I don't think the two inform one another, like guarantee. I don't I don't think it's yeah. that black and white. No, I don't think it's specifically about maternal instability. So sorry if it made it seem like that, but I'm like that would be a, a like a almost the generic example. Right. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. Like because I didn't I didn't feel responsible for my parents either, but I also have this. I have like hosting anxiety. I call it hosting anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I have that. Right. So then I, that also parlays into group sex situations. Like I, I once went to a uh, was on like a vacation and people sort of start fooling around, and uh, I immediately knew there was like this sort of guy that was like I don't know. I just, he was, this is mean to say, but he just like, wasn't that attractive, kind of was annoying everybody. And I was like, oh, if we all have sex, like, I'm going to have to fuck that guy. (laughs) Because I'm like, so I'd be so conscious of like the fact that no one wanted to sleep with him that I would be freaked out for him. Like, I would like want to make sure. Just so that he wasn't left out. Just so he wasn't left out. Right. And that's what you're saying, right? That you would want to make sure everyone was okay. I've not had to go to that extreme. I didn't have to either. We I avoided. You avoided. Well, we no one had sex, so it was fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. It all worked out. But I was like, if we do, I will be fucking that guy. Okay. That's telling about you. Right. Are you getting better on that front? I'm actually really trying. Like I'm it what it is, it's about boundaries, right? So if you saying that you're in a foursome and if you were in a foursome, you would f- be scared of what do I have to do with this person? What do I have to do with this person? I just don't know like how skillful I'm going to be with three people at once. That seems like a lot. But that's what I'm saying. It's like, why do you feel responsible that you have to give 
everything so much and equal amounts to all three people. Like, why wouldn't you just think like, oh, they'll fend for themselves or those two people will hook up or what am I, what am I going to get? Like, it's a good question. I, I never thought of this question when thinking about, admittedly, I'm not thinking about foursomes that often. But right. it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> the logistics of it. The that. logistics of it, of course, which is how I'm breaking it down. Uh, you know, your work predates um, the rise of the Me Too movement. And uh, you're still doing what you're doing. In fact, it's evolved since the real start of the movement. Um, I'm curious, where are you at with everything right now? You know, I think that this is such an interesting time I, to talk about sex and to talk about female sexuality specifically. I've, you know, I've, I've learned a ton. A lot. Everybody's looking back at their previous sexual history and thinking like, was that above board? I mean, women too. I There's definitely a situation where I look back on and like cringe a little bit where I feel like I was like pressuring someone to make out with me in a cab and that I wonder if it was pressure. It was like that line between trying and then someone saying no and then like being like, oh, come on. Like that, that is the gray area where I think everyone looks back and is like, oh, was I being playful uh-huh. or was I being like a me too, you know? Mm-hmm. And what was playful in one moment can be revised in a later moment and, and perceived as something totally different. Right. And the one, the one imbalance in this is that you may have made someone feel uncomfortable. I'm assuming it was a guy. Yeah. That guy will never say a thing, even if you did. And that's the part that I find that I'm trying to reconcile is that's going to have to be balanced at some point because every man, woman, whatever has had an experience where they made someone feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And when they were made to feel uncomfortable, it's just happened Mm -hmm. because it's, I mean, you know this better than I do. Sex is a weird, strange, vulnerable, scary thing that we don't often practice that much. There's not that much. It's like 0.01% of our life. Yeah. It's not like talking or breathing or being a friend with someone. Yeah. And yet it has this outsized importance and we have very little practice with it. And I, I just, it's, it's a very confusing time. That is, yeah, that is so beautifully put. Yeah, like no one's like, here's how you do it. You learn in real time and it's clumsy and it's awkward and people aren't even told how to talk about it. So then how They're do you know? They're told not to talk about it. Right. So how do you know if you're crossing someone's boundaries? This is why, this is why it's, you know, we need, first of all, more comprehensive sex education. But beyond that, I think that, yeah, everyone's kind of reconciling with their past behavior and also things that have happened to them. Sometimes, some now people are recontextualizing things, where the situations in which they did feel uncomfortable and are saying, "Oh, that person, you know, abused or harassed or assaulted mm-hmm. me." Um, I think that this spreads over into so many things that we're not even thinking of. Like I remember my mom was talking about, "Oh yeah, you know, when I was little, like when I was younger, my old boss." She basically told the story that I won't get into because I don't know if she'll want me to share it, but that her old boss did something to her and her coworkers, not like assault, but that just the ways in which he was talking mm. was really inappropriate and that she didn't feel like at the time that she had the power w- and in her job to say anything about it. But that now, you know, that 
women in her position probably do. And that's amazing, right? It's not just about, oh, my God, I was date raped or like my boss who's the CEO right. of Time Warner. It's every all the, all, it's pervasive. All the parts that where one feels empowered is like undeniably positive. Yeah. That's great. And that's what makes it worth continuing. I think we all agree on that. Completely. And I think the thing that I've written about a bit is that I think that the Me Too movement is at its best when it's really streamlined. Um, that when we keep on track, that in, in you know it was initially about sexual conduct and misconduct in the workplace, and I think we've made huge leaps in that department. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I'm going to sound like a, you know, this has been said already, but when then then when we get into that whole Aziz Ansari territory, then I think we're distracting from the movement, mm-hmm. and that it's we're. It seems watered down and too crazy and tangential, and I think that we have to keep on track. And and something I write about in my book is that I think that it's really important to talk about how sexual abuse is real, sexual harassment is real, and to hold people to, like, really high standards of contact, conduct, but also to be able to differentiate between harassment and abuse and discomfort, which is something that's different. Right. So being sexually un- being uncomfortable in a sexual situation is not always someone else's fault or responsibility. Right. The 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 I've come to that conclusion. The idea of discomfort, the concept of like discomfort in sex, it's just gonna happen. Mm-hmm. It just like you you are there are parts of it that can feel uncomfortable, that can feel new or foreign or scary, and I worry that the way we write about it and talk about it online. We're trying to promote and live a life where there is no discomfort, where there is no anxiety. And yet, I think like anyone who's fallen in love or anyone who's tried to love, on the other side of discomfort and anxiety is something really good. But oftentimes, really good things take some nerve that you have to get past. There has to take a peculiar situation where you're being vulnerable with someone that you do not know. And I just worry that we're we're really limiting ourselves. And I know that sounds. I don't want to sound like Dave Chappelle. I really don't. I don't. <laughs> want, I don't. I'm not like apologizing for anyone who's done anything untoward. I think all of those people should go to hell, and I don't care about them. Mm-hmm. But I also, I also think we're all so much more complicated than we're letting ourselves be. And that worries me. One hundred percent. I agree with that completely. I think. Did I say anything wrong? No, I think you're right. You have to put... I can be wrong. It's okay. You can tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) No, I will. But I... That's perfectly said. I think that sex and love, these things can't be pre-negotiated. And I think that increasingly we want that to be the case. You know, here's what's going to happen and here's what's not going to happen. Of course, setting your boundaries is great. You can totally say, I'm not comfortable to have penetrative sex right now or whatever. Um, But that... Often we discover these things in real time and that this whole, you know, can I, I mean, again, making fun of college students, but can I touch you here? Can I touch you here? Like, can I take your shirt off? All of these, you know, needing a enthusiastic yes all along the way is I think it's kind of I mean, do whatever you want, but it feels sad and it just feels not sexy to me. Sexy is spontaneity, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's like acting, right? So now um, there's these rules about boundaries and 
I think something happened. Yeah. So, D- Carla, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Sorry. On this okay. Podcast. Sorry. Please. Pre-negotiating it. I think that you need to leave room for the uncertain, and I think being able to hold space for what is uncertain is scary. Yeah. So people don't want to walk into that space, but that is where exciting things happen. I agree. We hate these college kids. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that what we're reducing it to? No, I just think people often um, put this on kids on college campuses, which I don't think is true. I think I think we're just figuring it out. I'm all for consent, by the way. I think people think that I'm like an anti-Me Too feminist, but that is absolutely not true. Because it, I talk about... That's what people think? No. It, in my book, I talk about victimization and how I'm anti-victim feminism, which is does not mean that I'm don't believe in sexual assault or sexual harassment. Mm. But I do think that when it comes to sex, and especially for women, we are told that a negative sexual experience can be devastating, right? That it will, that it can affect us for the rest of our lives and that it's like a, it's a badge that we'll never get over. And I think that that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that if you are told your whole life that if you have a bad sexual experience, right, whether it's being uncomfortable to being... Um, someone crossing your boundaries to assault that that you might never get over it, then of course you're going to think, oh my God, I might never get over this. Mm. Whereas men are told the exact opposite. Um, like in movies, for example, there's no there's no scene ever almost in which man has bad sex. Um, like, you know, this idea, all sex is good sex. Like there's a kind of trope of men being coerced into sex in movies with like a fat woman or an ugly woman. And then the next morning it's sort of like, funny and like fodder for jokes with his friends. Right. But if the same situation happened in reverse, like if a woman was coerced into sex by a man in a movie, like her life would be over. You know what I mean? She'd be like self-harming up a storm and it would just not be a not be a joke. And I'm not saying that you should just get over it if you're sexually if you're in a sexually negative situation. But I do think that the way that we frame these things is important. Mm. And that sort of identifying by our worst experiences, our worst sexual experiences, is one, not helpful for ourselves, but two, it's like I feel I do get annoyed by the promotion of victimhood that feels like it's so at the forefront of feminism now. Like, it's like people use the term oppression Olympics all the time, but I do feel like that's true. It's like, who's more victimized? And I just find it so annoying. I feel like I'm like really shooting myself in the foot right now. No, I mean, I, I had not heard that term. Really? Oppression Olympics? I'm totally stealing it from somebody else. It's but it's basically very, like, who's more oppressed? Yeah, no, I understood what it meant. It's just <laughs> horrible. It's a complicated... <laughs> I, I, um, I don't disagree with you. I yeah. just think, I just, my, my, the, the thing that I can comfortably um, put on a podcast for public consumption is that uh, I think everyone needs to be really thoughtful and cognizant about their own boundaries and they need to define them and then they probably need to redefine them every year or so Mm -hmm. because it changes as you change Um, and I think being vocal and honest and transparent and vulnerable about what you want what you're expecting and what is not okay has to constantly be redefined and reevaluated and has to be made like available to the person that you are with I think it's very easier said than done. It's really hard to do that. But um, that's where I stand. 
That's right so now. true. You're better at talking about this than I am. You said it perfectly that they're in flux all the time. So that's why these things constantly need to be renegotiated. This is the one thing that people always talk about non-monogamous people being more evolved than monogamous people is mm. that, you know, in monogamy, it's like there's one boundary, like don't fuck other people. But in non-monogamy, you're constantly having to talk and renegotiate over what the boundaries are. It's like... It's exhausting. Right? Can you tag? Can you sext? Can you... It's exhausting because you're doing it? I've done it. You are, you're done, you've yeah. done it? Yeah. Yeah. I did it once too. Well, like sort of one and a half times. It's a question. But we weren't good at setting boundaries, so... This is why I know that you need boundaries because it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask you something before we leave? Mm -hmm. um, did it ever go too far? Did you ever do something that you were like, I don't know if I can do this? Because you wrote about one thing that struck me and, and um, made me feel something for you. I'm not really sure what. But you wrote like that time, for instance, when I let my boyfriend tie me up to a dresser while I watched him have sex with my best friend. <laughs> yeah. And I said that as a joke. I mean, it was real. It's a good joke. That's a, also. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, the rest of it was like, unsurprisingly, it was literally awful. But now I can at least can yes, say I've done it. That is what you wrote. But I, 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 not to like drag you through that again, but what was it emotionally like to go through that? I mean, I was just in such a reckless mania phase that I just was. I just liked the idea of pushing my own boundaries all the time and trying new things. And my friend has the most amazing saying. He said, your 20s are when you charge everything to your trauma credit card and your 30s are when you have to pay it back. And I was like, wow, you are like, that is the most wise thing I've ever heard anyone say. It's wonderful. And I think that that is, was a lot of my 20s. Like that to me doesn't even like... It's not wasn't even one of the worst. Things. Oh, it doesn't even scratch the surface. Yeah, I mean, it was I stupid. The wrong one. It was silly, um, but but did, so did you have a moment where it went too far for you? I don't think it was a specific moment. I think it was a series of things where I was working out, like you said, what my boundaries were because I didn't know. Like when you don't know what your boundaries are, you're bound to um, have some experiences that really aren't great. I think it was a lot of stuff like that. It was not knowing my boundaries when I went to the sex party and having to drink myself into oblivion, you know, and, and then having a negative sexual experience because of that, not being able to remember who I slept with and then vomiting everywhere, you know, mm. um, not the greatest. But um, yeah, a lot of uh, doing things because other people wanted to, you know, like being in relationships where someone wants to have a threesome and then doing it and being like, mm, did I want to do that or did I just do it for you? Not, you know, feeling like I needed to take care of other people a lot. Like, you know, feeling like I needed to, like I would have to have sex with the guy that no one liked at the sex party. Like that is really the, the thing I need to, mm. the thing I have worked to try and get over, which is that sex is something that I like within a sexual experience, I need to have my own agency and autonomy and I should be doing things because I want to, not because I feel like uh, someone else's feelings are going to be hurt if I don't do it. And like we were talking about with the victim thing, it's like there's two ways to frame it. It's like, oh, my God, these these experiences were so bad and like fuck other people for forcing me to do things I didn't want to do, you know, and feeling like a victim of that. Or I could say like, God, 
I, you know, was going through a period where I was working out what I liked and what I didn't like. Those experiences, like, you know, were kind of shitty in hindsight or affected me in ways that I now have to sort of reconcile with. But you know what? I've really learned from those experiences and I'm a different person now. And now I know to avoid those experiences going forward. Like we learn from our mistakes, Mm. but I don't think you can learn from your mistakes if you don't think of them as mistakes so much as like shitty things that happened to you rather than things that like situations you ended up in partly because of your own choices and partly because of other people's that you now have to learn from. Does that make sense? It does. Now that you're on the other side of this, what do your parents think about your work? (laughs) You know what? We've actually come a long way. I think they are proud of me in a lot of ways. It's still like we keep a, you know, my my parents didn't read my book. I was like, I don't want you to read my book. It's a bit too much. Um, And they were happy to, to do that. They watch my show on Vice, but they watch it in separate rooms because they feel uncomfortable watching it together. <laughs> but they're like, I think they can say now, like, okay, you've made something out of this. You've made a career out of this. We never thought you could do that. So we have respect for you because of that. And just kind of like agree to disagree on some topics. But I mean, I, our relationship now is really good. So I feel happy about that. Yeah. How about your relationship uh, in being in love with someone? It's really good, you know? I feel like, what, what do my parents think about it? No, 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 oh, you, okay. you. No, 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 I mean your parents. <laughs> They're happy too. They're like, finally, you got a boyfriend. No, um, yeah, it's really fun. I like it. You know, I've never been in, this is the most serious relationship I've ever been in. Like, I've never lived with somebody. I've never been, like, planning a life with someone and, like, buying curtains or whatever. And I'm like, wow, this is fun too, you know? Like, it's funny. Uh, I've had a life of a lot of novelty, relationship and sexual novelty, but... Th- you know, now that I'm 33, this is the novel thing. Mm. And that's fun, too. You know, like you want to I want to have all the experiences. Like literally we were just buying curtains and I was like, oh, my God, this is so fun. He's like, what are you fun. talking about? <laughs> I was like, this is the sex party of my 33rd year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. That's the last thing I wanted to ask was, which is uh, now that you're 33 on the other end of. Uh, 20s of trauma that you finished. What do you want with this decade of your life? Oh, God, come on, dude. (laughs) It's really hard. Um, That's the first time you've given me pushback on a question. I know, because it's like, ugh, five-year plan. No, not a five-year plan. No, I know. You don't have to give me any plan like that. But just when you're thinking about it by yourself and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that or, oh, I'd like to enter this part of my life. Yeah, I'm really... I want to move more into writing scripted TV or scripted series last year called Now Apocalypse, one season of it. But I want to be able to, like, take the stories that I've um, experienced and all the things I've learned from everybody I've talked to and and write more stories about women and sexuality and, and male sexuality in a more narrative way. Like, I, in a way that I'm saying I'm, I'm sick of talking about myself. You know, I think I've done a lot of that. And now... I want to tell other people's stories. I also want to, I like, as I move forward in my life and that my life is less about random casual sex and just sort of funny, disastrous dungeon experiences or whatever, um, and more about learning what it means to be in a long-term relationship and intimacy and jealousy and all of these things. And, And my friends also, who are my age, going through these things as well, right, that I become more interested in that, talking about, I would love to make a show next, you know, post-slut ever on Viceland that's more about 
relationships mm-hmm. and what that means and like get a little bit more feelingsy. Not that it still can't be like funny and silly, but that it's like less about, oh my God, you like to wear that horse head when you fuck? Like, tell me about that, which is still totally interesting, but it's, I'm more interested in like, so if you were cheated on in the past, like, what does that mean for the day-to-day of your new relationship? Like, how does that anxiety manifest? How do you get over that? Like, how do you trust somebody, you know? Like, I think that that's more and more what my speed is now. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Good. I feel like I learned a lot about myself and also you. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Carly, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. our show special thanks this week to carly shortino if you'd like to find more of our work you can visit slutever.com we'll also include more about carly in our show notes at talkeasypod.com if you enjoyed today's episode uh, which if you're listening i imagine you did uh, i think you'd enjoy other conversations with two different sex educators we've had on the podcast including erica chidi cohen and zoe ligan if you'd like to listen to those episodes, you can do so on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to consider making a donation to the show, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash donate. If you can't help us out financially, really, um, just sharing the show with someone is the best way for new listeners to find this podcast. And uh, as always, this show is executive produced by David Chen graphics by ian jones illustrations by krishna shenoy design by ian chang social media by ghani zur our show is taped out of york recording here in los angeles california by the excellent tim moore our associate producer is caroline reebok and the show is produced by neil innes i'm sam fragoso thank you for listening to talk easy we'll be back next week with scott aukerman until then have a good week everyone the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.